Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves, continuing medical education podcast. Join us every other week for a lively discussion on the latest and greatest in the field of electrocardiography. We'll discuss some of the exciting and innovative work happening at Mayo Clinic and beyond with the most brilliant minds in the space and provide valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves. We're so glad you could join us. Today, we have an exciting episode planned for you as we discuss emerging ECG methods for ischemia detection. We have an expert discussant joining us, and he's going to help us better understand this topic and the future of the field. So let's get started. The 12-lead ECG is one of the most widely used non-invasive assessments of acute myocardial ischemia. It helps to detect, diagnose, and manage these patients. But how well does it do? In this episode, we will discuss ECG detection of acute myocardial ischemia, including the very basis of the ECG findings, limitations inherent to the ECG, and approaches to improve the ECG's sensitivity. We're fortunate to have an expert in the field, Dr. Salah Alzaiti, to discuss this with us further today. Dr. Alzaiti is an Associate Professor of Nursing, Emergency Medicine, and Cardiology, as well as the Vice Chair of Research at the Department of Acute and Tertiary Care at the University of Pittsburgh. He brings 15 years of experience as a clinician, scientist, innovator, and entrepreneur. His academic career has focused on the biomedical modeling and phenotyping of physiological signals in coronary artery disease, myocardial infarction, heart failure, and cardiomyopathy, with special emphasis on novel ECG signatures of cardiac ischemia. Dr. Alzaiti currently leads two NIH-funded observational trials that focus on developing and deploying artificial intelligence ECG clinical decision support tools to triage patients with chest pain at the emergency department. Dr. Alzaiti has been very productive academically with nearly 100 scholarly publications in peer-reviewed journals and more than 50 scientific presentations at national and international forums. He is a fellow of the American Heart Association, and he has helped develop the 2020 AHA Scientific Statement for Preventing and Mitigating the Risk of Exercise-Related Adverse Cardiac Events, as well as the upcoming 2023 AHA Scientific Statement on the Role of Artificial Intelligence, so AI, in Improving Cardiovascular Outcomes. He is the conference chairman of the upcoming 2023 International Society of Computerized ECG Annual Conference, and he currently serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Electrocardiology. Dr. Alzaiti, what a true honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much, Dr. Kashu. The pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me. You know, it was so nice to get to know you back at your, the recent conference where you were co-chair and now chair. I'm so excited and proud of, you know, what you've accomplished. And what I wanted to get your insights were on kind of the ECG and the ischemia detection. And so I guess, firstly, you know, we know that the ECG is key in the evaluation of suspected acute coronary syndrome. You know, for instance, the patient's coming to us in the emergency department with uh, substernal chest pain. However, we know it, it's not perfect. And so, firstly, I want to know, what are your thoughts on the accuracy of the 12-lead ECG in detecting ischemia, and where do you see the potential pitfalls in its performance? Okay, thank you. And this is a very great question, actually, to start with. And with the context, we know that chest pain is very common. Almost 7 to 10 million people complain of chest pain, and they come to the emergency room every year in the U.S. alone. And we do a 12-lead ECG, and it would be great. It gives us an answer up front and say, oh, this is a patient is having some coronary occlusion. This patient does not. However, it's not doing that great. 
it does it wonderfully for a small subset that's even it's that's defined by the ECG itself, which are the STEMI groups. So now if you took these STEMIs away, which are one to two percent of the general chest pain population, what do you do with the rest of the 92? 98% uh, of patients, chest pain, we do not have that feature. Uh, research is very controversial. Many meta-analyses were done on the field, but we want to focus on one of them that looked at around 24,000 uh, patients with non-specific chest pain, excluding these STEMIs. It gives us an overall average accuracy of sensitivity of 68%. Specificity is not that great as well, 77%. And this is uh, controversial again. This is just like the uh, on average. The range is like 23% to 100%. So some studies report that ECG is only sensitive to 23%. If you put that in a context, uh, out of every four patients who come with a true occlusion in their coronary arteries, the ECG might miss three. That's what that's the reality. That's what we are dealing with here. And that's why when you think about clinical workflow, if the ECG is negative, that's not known to the patient. In the emergency room, you do troponins, you do biomarkers, you do you know stress tests, you do numerous things. Sometimes you admit the patient for observations, and it might be like one or two days before you even declare whether there is you know infarction or not. And sometimes you send them home; it might be false positive. They come a week later with more serious infarction. So we are really dealing with an accuracy that's on average at sixty-eight percent, but it might be as bad as twenty-three percent. So, so quite the quite the range, uh, you know, in terms of what we're missing. And those patients are having some underlying substrate, even myocardium, that is uh, now vulnerable in potentially infarcted, meaning the, the dying of the tissue. Where do you see the pitfalls? Are there any thoughts to, you know, why it, it doesn't do so well or even just reaching that 60-some percent uh, threshold? Mm -hmm. So this, this is really like the essence of the problem. I, I completely agree. Where are the pitfalls? And if, if I want to try to group the different causes together, I would say you can think about it as, you know, at three levels. One of them is conceptual limitations. There are technical limitations. There is what we call clinical limitations. So in terms of concept, when you try to diagnose a coronary occlusion using surface ECG, you are really talking about two different entities here. Occlusion is a problem of blood flow. And surface ECG is a manifestation of the action potential that's happening in the heart. Now, although they are related, but it's an indirect measure. So technically what happens is you get a coronary occlusion, it disrupts the metabolism at, uh, uh, at the myocardial level. That disrupts the action potential action potential transmits from the myocardium to the surface ECG. During that transmission, it goes through tissues, there are the lungs, there is space, there is air. Eventually, it manifests you know, on the surface ECG. So just the concept of moving from what really happens from the occlusion itself to the surface, the concept itself explains why the ECG is not perfect. It's an indirect measure. It's not like you are putting someone in a cath lab, looking with a microscope, looking in their arteries to measure whether there is occlusion or not. That's one, one of the pitfalls why in concept, in general, people are okay with saying it should not be 100% sensitive because conceptually it's an indirect measure. But there are more sides to the story. You want to think about the technical aspects of it. Well, there's a lot of technical specifications here. We put electrodes on the chest. 
And these electrodes are facing the myocardium from different directions. And we all know the basics of 12 bit ECG and why we have the pericardial leads and the limb leads because we want to have all these different views of the heart. But if you think about it, when you get metabolic derangements in certain areas that are ischemic, they generate distortions in the action potential. These distortion, distortions are, they vary from side to side. So there is what we call spatial heterogeneity from one side from myocardium to the other. These start generating injury currents. Now these injury currents might simply align with the normal pathway of activation or recovery, in other words, depolarization and polarization. So they are would be completely masked on the ECG. Now, if these ischemic currents hit in a different axis compared to the normal pathway, depending on where that axis is, if it is perpendicular, these are the basic of the ECG, it just makes a waveform a little bit smaller. However, when they start hitting in different directions, that's where you know a changes start, you know, the ECG is summative, they start canceling each other. That's why where you might see, you know, something, some more like bigger changes on the ECG. Still, if these changes are having in a location where an electrode is not facing, they're going to be completely masked, or they might cancel each other. If there is one injury current from this side of the heart, there is a completely uh, opposite direction of another injury current at another side of the heart, like when you have an interior and some posterior, or even like, you know, inferior. These start canceling each other. And that's the nature of the technology. It's vector-based. So uh, they start canceling each other. So you do an ECG, it doesn't show up anything. That's another pitfall. And the last thing I want to comment on is there are clinical pitfalls. And uh, clinical pitfalls would be what guidelines tell us. And right now, we are all familiar with the STEMI non-STEMI paradigm. And if you think about it, the STEMI is really putting a mindset on the ST segment and tells us if the ST segment is elevated, then you are dealing with STEMI. Sort of like really putting us in that tunnel vision, really focusing on the ST segment. However, when you think about ischemia, there are changes that happen across that continuum of the ECG. The QRS, we're all familiar with the Q wave, widening of the QRS, fragmentations of the QRS, loss of a slur in the S wave, of course, to what happens to the T wave. So it's not just the ST segment. So when you say, you know, the ECG is that much accurate, it depends on what criteria you are using. If you are following the universal definition of a minor looking at the ST segment, of course, you are not going to be perfect. So we, we consider that more of like a clinical limitation in terms of how would we actually define the criteria of the ECG to pick up uh, ischemia that might be going on. When you take all of these aspects together, you end up understanding why the ECG is not that perfect. And some people are okay with that. They say it should not be actually 100%. It's an indirect measure. And we have all of these limitations. So that's where we lie right now. It's really fascinating to, and thank you, you even got to my next question, which was the basis of some of these findings, but to kind of uh, take some of what you mentioned uh, of these pitfalls in the different areas, and uh, when we say the accuracy, there is the potential pitfall of how we define ischemia, uh, which is is an important thing. And, and so 
maybe if our definitions improve, maybe our accuracy might be a little better. And that's so interesting. But that gets to our next thing. And that's actually from this commentary paper you had in the, the Journal of Electrocardiology, where you start to discuss some of these approaches to improve the ECG's sensitivity to ischemia. And you mentioned four techniques, you know, the first one, and I'll list them, and then maybe we could go through each one of them. Mm -hmm. The first technique based on novel ECG signatures of ischemia beyond the ST segment and T-wave abnormalities, as you mentioned just recently with how we define and maybe we get honed in and so focused on the ST segment. Uh, the second technique of maximizing the spatial coverage of the ECG you discuss. And then the, the third one is based on the ECG imaging. And finally, the one based on AI or artificial intelligence and machine learning techniques. So maybe we could look at each one of these because they're quite fascinating. So let's start with the using the novel ECG signatures of ischemia as an intuitive approach. Maybe you could elaborate further on, on, on this one. This is a very great starting point, and I agree with you. It's the most intuitive way, since the way how we define, you know, ischemia is, uh, to some extent is limited with the ST segment. And let me make a comment and elaborate further on why we look at ST segment, you know. So from a clinical standpoint, we are really interested in finding the patients who would benefit from uh, immediate reperfusion. And uh, earlier studies have shown us that what technically happens when you get a complete coronary occlusion, that leads to what we call transmural ischemia across the spectrum of myocardial wall, and that what leads to significant ST elevation. So with that classical understanding, we always linked, you know, ST elevation with STEMI. These are the ones that need preperfusion. And now you have that sort of like paradigm in practice where they say if it's not a STEMI, doesn't really matter, you know, why would the ECG need to subjugate? Because these patients are not going to need immediate reperfusion. Now, you can actually answer that question from two different perspectives. One of them would be, well, at least we need to rule out. Ruling out is in, in emergency practice is as important as ruling in. If you rule in one to 2% with STEMI, what do you do with the other 98% that you cannot rule out on the spot? And that leads to resource utilization, unnecessary admissions, unnecessary and provocative testing, et cetera, et cetera. So we didn't need to think about rule out. But another way to think about that question is that classical understanding of transfural ischemia leading to ST elevation is not really 100% accurate. We recently put a scoping review together where we looked at literature that correlate STEMI, non-STEMI with the magnitude of coronary occlusion. And in that scoring review, we looked at 80,000 patients from, I think, 15 different studies. And what we found is that among those who have a STEMI ECG, 25% of them do not have total coronary occlusion. And what's more worrisome is among those who do not have a STEMI, or what we call non-STEMIs, 40%, or actually I reversed them, I think it's 40% of STEMIs do not have occlusion, and 25% of those who do not have a STEMI pattern actually do have a total coronary occlusion. And that's why when you think about guidelines, even in non-STEMIs, there is what we call early risk stratification to identify among the non-STEMIs who would benefit from early reperfusion. Because we know that we don't want to send them all to CAF, but some of them what actually need. And it turns out to be these 25%. So now when you go back to the basics, 
Well, then ST elevation itself is not really capturing this, you know, total occlusion versus no total occlusion. So then the question becomes, what else on the ECG would capture that? That takes us to the first uh, intuitive approach of uh, there are signatures on the ECG. Now, to put this in a simple context, if you look at, at an automated algorithm to interpret an ECG, say this algorithm is reading these ECGs and giving this accuracy. If you look at any paper in the literature that compares an automated software against a cardiologist, and that's where they start putting these fancy titles, cardiologist level detection, cardiologist level interpretation, we always find out that a cardiologist beats an automated algorithm. So now let's think about that for a second. Well, this is a completely unfair comparison because do you know what a cardiologist does? They beat everything on the ECG. Look at Q waves, you look at QRS, you look at slurring, you look at the shape of the T wave, you start looking at reciprocal changes between electrodes, and we will take all of these into account. Of course, you're going to beat an automated algorithm because an automated algorithm is simply, simply looks at ST segment. Is it elevated with that much in these leads? Yes, no, it's rule based. So, with that in context, well, why don't we quantify? the features that can be detected by visual inspection. And have we done that? Of course, massive literature out there. I would just comment on one paper, and I think from 2009, that was put together as a consensus statement from the International Society of Computerized ECG, leaders in the field who put that commentary together right after the third universal definition of MI, I believe. What they said, there are pitfalls in there. Because if you look at the universal definition of MI, talks about the ST elevation, ST depression, T wave inversion. They put it in a very tiny table. And they identify eight different patterns. There aren't comment on all of them, but they start talking about things like ST depression in V1 to V3, or even V4, like well sign. We know what well sign is. But they also comment about tiny T wave inversions, V1 to V4. Then they also talk about hyperacute T waves. And they map these specific visual patterns to certain occlusion, they say, oh, this is a, a, an occlusion of the marginal branch. This is occlusion of uh, OM branch, et, et cetera. I think you previously had Dr. Smith in here and with his occlusion MI, non-occlusion MI, he also defines around different seven different patterns. And they overlap nicely with this consensus statement where he started identifying ST depression, V1 to V4, et cetera, et cetera. Many of these features overlap. So when you think about it, there are more signatures on the ECG to indicate ischemia than simply as the segment elevation depression. Now, the downside of this is these are patterns based on visual inspection. And there is a lot of subjectivity between providers. So uh, when we put them out there in guidelines, some providers might be better than others. And this inter-rater variability between ECG interpreters is very well documented in the literature. So how can we overcome that? And this is the other interesting part about can we quantify in an objective manner these distortions that we see on the ECG without the need to visually inspect the ECG, in other words, in computational approaches. And yes, there are numerous features out there. I will just comment on one of them. And this feature I really love, and I published previously on this one, is called PCA ratio, or standing for principal component analysis of the ECG. So to put this in a simple context, if you look at a waveform right from the onset of the PRS to the offset of the T uh, wave, and 
you align all beats or all 12 beats, you know, together, you get sort of like a superimposed 12 different keys. Now, if you run what we call principal component analysis, which is a mathematical operation that identify perpendicular independent eigenvalues in the ECG. It starts identifying and isolating patterns among all of these 12 uh, different leads. And what it does is it looks for uniformity and deviations. So, and when you think about the activation and recovery in the heart, uh, we anticipate that uh, the activation of the myocardium follows a main pathway and the recovery follows a another main pathway. Now, if you remember the injury currents I mentioned earlier, when we said there are injury currents that run either distorting the activation or the recovery of the heart, these injury currents, they are not following the main uniform pathway of this activation. So when you run something like a principal component analysis on these 12 feeds, you end up with what we call eigenvalues. You know, what would be the most representative waveform followed by the next, the third, and the fourth? And if you take a ratio between them, if this is a healthy heart with a uniform depolarization and uniform repolarization, you will find like there is one giant eigenvalue that explains everything. This is the first eigenvalue. However, the more injury vectors you have, that's where you start seeing there is a second eigenvalue. There is a third eigenvalue. So when you start taking ratios between them, the bigger the ratio, it means there is more distortion across the waveforms, across the signals on the ECG. This is called the principal common analysis or the PCA analysis, and it can easily quantify all of the different lead-to-lead -lead variations that someone can see on the ECG, you know, as a clinical expert, simply by calculating a number and just putting it on the ECG and say, that's how much distortion we have. Our prior work, we have shown that looking at these T-wave complexities or PCA ratios in a dynamic fashion can give you a sensitivity and specificity at least 82%. So when you compare that to the 68% I mentioned initially on average, this is still like a very nice gain by simply doing a simple calculation, computing a simple ratio, giving you almost 80% sensitivity specificity on the ECG. That's really fascinating to think of, you know, I think we have that idea that there are signatures that, that you mentioned and that have been published that, you know, are not really well used or well recognized that we have to be, you know, teach almost people about. And so I appreciate you, you mentioning those because for those of us that look at ECGs all the time, you know, we can start to see them, but it takes time and it's that recognition. And so it makes sense why, you know, a clinician, a cardiologist that's seeing them over and over, they start to ingrain these signatures and do a little better than, than the computer. I want to get to that second technique that you mentioned about maximizing the spatial coverage of the 12 lead ECG. How do you see that? I guess maybe can you explain that? And then how would that enhance the sensitivity to detect uh, ischemia on the ECG? So in this technique, we are mainly talking about body surface potential mapping. The uh, reasoning is simple. Since ischemia might happen at any location in the heart, and the whole idea of having 12 leads is to have 12 different views of the heart, you can easily miss up on smaller areas of ischemia that might be like tiny or in a location that's weakly sensed by the 12 leads. So when you start expanding the spatial coverage with something like a 
body surface potential mapping, conceptually, of course, you're going to enhance the sensitivity. And in my commentary paper, I, I, I mentioned two main uh, studies. And one of them is Occlude MI, done, I think, 2009, looking at 80 electrodes, you know, with a vest that's put on the chest. And it showed that they were able to pick up 27% more STEMIs just by adding these 80 leads compared to a 12 lead. And the follow-up study a few years later have shown that, you know, uh, they can reach almost 90% sensitivity for ischemia detection just by, you know, body surface attention value. Now, as always, there is a downside here. And the downside is this requires more equipment, you know, for hospitals to start getting a body surface attention mapping. Plus, it's, uh, it's not easy to interpret and it's very laborious. And that's why their clinical utility is, is really dimensioned. I don't see that happening in the future. And that leads me to uh, a brief discussion about a very innovative technique called the vessel specific ECG leads, which stands for VSEL, vessel. So uh, th this technique was developed by researchers from US and Canada in collaboration with Philips and some of the legendary experts in the field, Dr. Gallen Wagner, uh, who, uh, who was part of the initial TIMI studies, and he was the editor-in-chief in general electric cardiology for a long time. He passed away almost 10 years ago. He was one of the initial you know, innovators of this technique. So this technique tries to bring the value of body surface potential mapping simply by using the tool of the decision. So what they have done, and, and this is computationally smart way of doing it, they did on a series of patients, both a body surface potential map and a 12 lead ECG. First, and, and this I think were an angioplasty studies, where you inflate the balloon, so you have a gold standard of ischemia, and you know exactly where it's happening. If you're inflating it in the LAD, then you know it's, this is an LAD occlusion pattern. And what they were doing is they were recording the maximum area of distortion on the body surface that comes with LAD occlusion. Same thing with LCX, same thing with RCA. Now they were able to easily pick this up because they had 80 electrodes with body surface potential mapping. And what they did is they created computationally coefficients, conversion coefficients. How do I estimate these areas on the chest simply by using the 12 lead ECG using coefficients or conversion coefficients? And they were able to do that. So technically, the, the way how this technology works is you take a 12 lead ECG, you read the signal from these 12 lead, and you can generate three new leads. One of them is called LAD lead, RCA lead, and LCX lead. And what these leads are, are uh, approximate approximations of how an occlusion of LAD using body surface potential mapping would look like if you really have the right electrodes in the right spot. So they can be derived from the 12 lead. And we have tested that in a serious, you know, in, in, in our current NIH-funded study on around 4,000 ECGs. And, we, you know, it was very amazing when you give a clinician a 12 lead, say, do you see anything? They say, you know, no, it's, there's nothing in there. Then you give another 12 lead that includes these three additional vessel leads. And he says, what are these? And you say, oh, this is the LAD, or this is a lead tailored toward the LAD. And say, so where did that elevation come from? And you can easily start picking up on that. I think we recently presented that at the American College of Cardiology, and boosts, it did boost the accuracy and sensitivity to 85%. 
and the negative predictive value up to 95%, just simply using the 12 lead ECC itself, but reproducing what we call vessel leads, which, which uses the concept of body surface potential mapping to maximize the spatial coverage around the heart to really start reaching out to where the skin is supposed to look like on the body surface. That's amazing, honestly. You know, I've seen some of that work where, you know, they're mapping the vessel and, uh, you know, that's probably even, you know, helpful to the interventionalist if they're going to cath and to have an idea of what things look ahead of time. And so the body surface potential, adding that additional coronary artery uh, layer to it, you could see the value there. And so we've talked about, you know, the novel signatures, you know, the maximizing the, the spatial coverage. And, and now I want to get to that third technique uh, that you talk about with the ECG imaging and how that could be used to detect uh, ischemia. Okay, so ECG imaging. So let me comment on what ECG imaging is. So this is based on the inverse ECG solution. So what does that mean? So uh, we know that if, you know, the best way to look at uh, the action potential alterations is just simply to put electrodes on the myocardium itself. This is the electrogram. And EB, you know, electrophysiology uh, or EB doctors, they do that all the time. When you know, when they do the ablation or any sort of EB procedure, you don't rely on the surface ECG. You go directly on the action potential on the electrogram. Now, uh, there has been a lot of research over decades can we actually estimate how the action potential looks like simply by measurements on the surface ECG? And that's what they call the inverse solution. So they are trying to regenerate the action potential simply by looking at globally. That comes with limitations because you have to take into account the torso, the shape, the geometry, the size of the heart, the size of the chest, the lungs, etc., because they are all get distorted as confounders during that conversion. And a lot of research has been done in that area, and that's what uh, they call ECG imaging nowadays, where you take the 12 lead ECG based on a torso or a, a, a body and geometry, you, you try to map what's happening on the surface uh, of the heart or the myocardium itself. Now, with that work, there has been a lot of research about, by doing so, are we able to make measurements of the action potential itself that's drive from the ECG to say whether there's a ischemia or not. And uh, uh, you teach ECG all the time, and you know there are phases. There's phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, and you know exactly what happens with ischemia in phase three. So the idea was simple. If I take 12 lead and do inverse ECG solution, and now I have an action potential, approximate action potential in front of me, can I measure phase three, for example, the time, the slope, the shape? And can I use that to predict ischemia? This has been done, and uh, they have some uh, interesting uh, preliminary results. And their sensitivity runs between 70% specific, 70%, but it's, it's not really encouraging because that's what you are actually getting, you know, on average from the ACG itself. Now, one specific technique that was really novel that I want to comment on is uh, SYN ECG. So SYN ECG is based on the same concept of, uh, of ECG imaging, but they were so smart in their inverse solution, rather than regenerating just the action potential, they tried to act, approximate and display the location of the activation 
on the heart in a bath way. So since the ECG is done in like, you know, in, in a time series, so, so we say there are samples per second. So when we see the ECG is done at 500 samples per second, which means every one second we are making 500 measurements. And this is time measurement, which means the signal is propagating in the heart somewhere during each one of these cells. So how are we able to re-engineer and inverse a pathway on the heart to see where the signal starts, where does it propagate, and how does it spread in the heart? And that's what the same ECG is. They take the 12-feet ECG, they generate an image based on a body torso, they give you a 3D heart, and they show you where the signal originates and where does it spread. And based on our simple understanding of the ECG and the uh, conduction pathway, you can start making uh, conversion and say, wait, look, there is something abnormal here because the pathway is supposed to go to the septum, then it goes to the death, then it goes to the apex, and I don't see that here. And to make this technology even more user-friendly, what they have done is they used a database of, I think, around 7,000 healthy adults, and they plotted what a normal pathway should look like. So in addition to seeing in this given patient with this model, now I'm looking at a 3D heart, seeing their actual pathway, it's highlighted up overimposed over where a normal pathway is supposed to look like. Now you can easily start looking at distortions. Oh, it's now going outside of normal. So this is a diseased heart. And although the technology itself has been validated for things like conduction pathways, which is very intuitive because if there's a conduction abnormality, then this activation pathway will be messed up. But there was a motivation to see, can this actually capture ischemia? What happens with ischemic regions, and we know that, we end up with a delayed or, or you know, a, a sluggard repolarization in these areas. And this is one of the mechanisms why we have re-entry arrhythmias with ischemia, because if due to that altered repolarization, while the heart activates, that area still activates. While the heart is repolarizing, that area might be activated. That's sort of like a distortion. So there was a, a hypothesis. Would something like a SIN ECG capture ischemia? In other words, it would show you a pathway that eventually leads to the ischemic zone. And the evidence still emerging. We tested this on a couple hundred patients in our data, and the results are promising. These were surely big patients, so I'm not going to really exaggerate the finding, but we were really looking at sensitivity 94%. But again, this is still like cherry picking because it's not like all patients who are like picking examples. But this, this is sort of like an idea of the field of ECG imaging. All software can be installed on any laptop, any computer, EHR system, 12-bit ECG just reads it and plots it for you on a 3D heart. That's really amazing, honestly, translating the ECG and using that to, you know, see where the, not only conduction defects, but also, you know, areas of ischemia. It's really fascinating. And I've seen a lot, you know, some of your work uh, that you shared with me. It's really fabulous. And I can't wait to see a little more uh, of what you have in store. The final and probably, you know, the exciting area that I, I know you do a lot of work in is artificial intelligence. And we see this really growing in, in the field of electrocardiology. H how do you see it us using this technology to almost, you know, harnessing the strengths of it, you know, realizing that there are some limitations, but how do we use its strengths to improve the diagnostic yield to, to detect ischemia? Okay, so AI, this is the elephant in the room. So... I agree with you. Now, I want to approach this topic from an understandable 
uh, or interpretable fashion for clinicians. Because I'm not one of the big fans of saying, oh, just give it to the AI and let the machine do it. And somehow it's going to pick it up. No, we really need to understand the mechanism and go into the weeds of how does the AI do it. So we had we, we just had a discussion about what happens with ischemia. And we said, you know, rule-based systems look at STM budget. If it is above a threshold ischemia, no, not above a threshold, no ischemia, and end of the story. Now, when you compare that to what how a cardiologist treats an ECG, we mentioned that no, it's more of a comprehensive approach. So looking at QRS, morphology, shape, T-wave, amplitude, inversions, is the ST segment concave or is it convex? Start looking at all of these things, you take them all into account before you make a determination as a cardiologist to say, is there ischemia or no? Now, when you think about that, this is really improving. We want the machine to do it this way, but we run into what we call highly high-dimensional space problem. Because now you are not dealing with a simple rule-based system where it says measure ST, is it above official? Yes, no, put ischemia out there. No, you're really talking about training a machine to go into an ECG and start making evaluations of waveforms. So if you think about it, you look at the Q wave, how wide, how deep, it's area. You move to the QRS, look at the R amplitude, it's area. You look at the same thing in the S, then you go into the ST segment. It's not only the amplitude. Look at the overall morphology. Is it upsloping? Is it downsloping? Is it concave, convex? You go to the T wave, you look at its duration, its amplitude, its area. And you do that for every single lead, but you also do that for all leads together. So if you think about it, you are simply harvesting features from every lead by Q area, Q amplitude, Q duration. You move to the R, you do the same thing for the ST, for the T area, T width, T amplitude, T uh, symmetry. These are all things that can be quantified from every single lead then across all leads. And if you get all of these features, and we have done that, you get around 554 features from the 12 feet. How would a rule-based system actually take that into account? Because now, you know, you can do that. And that's the power of the AI. The AI was designed, which is uh, the simple sense, mathematical representations. AI simply at the end of the day is math. math. So these mathematical representations, their power is, they are heavily geared towards high dimensionality. In other words, you look at hundreds of features at the same time, taking into account all features together in the same lead across different leads. And along with all of this multidimensionality, the relationships are non-linear. If you think about the STM, that was a linear relationship. Goes up, goes down, and you make a determination. But taking all of these you know, features together is a non-linear. So now, if I want to put all of these features together, in a mathematical representation that's multidimensional space and it's nonlinear, simply what you are doing here is AI. So you started out running things like support vector machine, which is a completely nonlinear complex mathematical representation. Random first, another algorithm, a neural network. They all are multidimensional. You can feed them with all of these features and they can account for the complexity of you know nonlinear trends and the interactions and the multidimensionality. This is the most intuitive way of running AI on the ECG. Combines the power of uh, domain expertise because we have more than 100 plus years of experience with ECG. It has been there more than 100 years. 
It's not like a new field. We know the ECG. So if you featureize all of the things we know as domain experts from the ECG, just feed them in a neural network or around the first, technically you are doing the simplest form of AI. This is what we have done on our data. This, I'm, I'm in love with this technique because it keeps the integrity of the human component. And it has been shown to boost the performance compared to rule-based systems by 50% gain in sensitivity is like a huge gigantic value you know when you say 50% gain in sensitivity now when you think about it you say well this makes sense because a cardiologist will always be the rule based because a cardiologist what that's what human do is, uh, that's what human do they are good in pattern recognition so can you convert ai against uh, human interpreters and we have done that there is still 37% gain in sensitivity which means AI was using all of the same features that the cardiologist is processing in their brain by looking at the ECG, also catching things that a human eye couldn't, you know, in terms of patterns, and was still able to boost performance beyond what the human imitator is able to do. And that's sort of like how you think about the AI in its simple, most intuitive form to address the problem of, you know, interpreting the ECG to detect ischemia. You know, it's really, I think that's important, you know, what you mentioned of kind of that domain expertise um, and using that human component, which, you know, we see that there is something there beyond what the rule-based systems can add and and almost harnessing that to improve it. it, it I agree. It's, it's amazing. And I think that's probably what we need and, you know, really capturing some of those which maybe they are novel signatures or signatures that we know, but we're not just uh, applying uh, very uh-huh. well. You know, you've listed four areas, and I would say they're you know they're all areas of future opportunities. But where? So you, let, go ahead. Let me let me, yeah. make, let me make one more comment before sure. uh, we we leave. Uh, you know, uh, the AI approach. Please. Because yeah. a lot of people would say, what about deep learning? This is the other grill in the room. And although I may close that, I'm not really a big fan of just letting the machine do all the featureization because what, that's what deep learning is. You feed waveforms to the machine and let the machine do all the work. Now, in concept, this makes sense. Given that you have millions of training samples and if you do that, I think you, deep learning would be able to pick up on a lot of the features so you can bypass the step of feature engineering or, you know, human crafted features. But again, millions of data points. Now, if you want to ask me about what would be the ideal approach, and I know this might have to do with, uh, you know, going into the future direction, but I will jump into this now since I'm talking about it. It would be great if we have hybrid models. And hybrid, in terms of you extract human engineered features that we know the machine should look at these things, but at the same time, you feed the raw signal. That's what we call hybrid models. And these are usually you know, uh, multi-layered neural networks. That's really going to neural networks here, where you are feeding both engineered features plus raw form. So you make the task of the neural network easier. And at the same time, you make sure there are no false discoveries. So no false positives, no false negatives. You minimize these as much as possible. And these hybrid neural networks to actually, you know, give your assessment because I, I do believe that there might be things in the ECG that we don't know about. So if we just want to limit ourselves to human crafted features, we might be missing something. But 
the solution would not be abandoning human trusted features altogether and going to deep learning. It should be a hybrid model between both to eventually give the highest accuracy that's possible, you know, for the ECG to get this the deep learning, like you said, it, it does have currently some limitations, especially with the whole ischemia detection, not only, you know, using that, but, you know, the patients you select, um, there's a lot of limitations that I know you're very well aware of. And I think you're right, there has to be, you know, a little bit of, of maybe it has to be the hybrid, you know, realizing that there's something, there's things that we, probably a lot we don't know, but there's things that we do know. And, and can we use the things we know and then maybe find things we, we don't know to improve this. Is that where you, you think the focus of the field should be, or, or where, what are your thoughts? I think, yes, I think the focus moving forward, you know, would be, you know, if when I use AI, uh, again, this, this sort of like encapsulate is an overarching theme uh, over the first group of approaches, which is, you know, uh, novel signatures of ischemia, you know, and that's where we will have defined that. But the AI sort of like includes an overarching thing. So I think, yeah, moving into that direction, automated ECG interpretation is like one of the big things out there, you know, one of the first applications of computer into medicine. It's just the automated interpretation of the appropriate ECG. And I think it would benefit a lot from AI. I think the direction should be there, you know, looking at hybrid models human-crafted features, feature selection, data-driven, in addition to uh, raw waveform, feed these together to detect ischemia. And it's not as simple as that because, again, you really need large amounts of data. And I know that at Mayo Clinic, you have access to more than 2.5 million ECGs, which is like, really, that's what you need for deep learning. We're really talking about millions of ECGs. But the other thing is, these ECGs need to be labeled with the right outcome. And that's one of the uh, biggest sources of, you know, a, a self-fulfilling prophecies. So when you think about what I mentioned earlier about stemming on stemming, a, a lot of people have these deep learning paper in the literature. They are so ubiquitous out there. But when you go into the weeds, they are trying to predict MI defined as a stem. Now, when you think about them, they report like an AUC area under the care for 99.99999%. And you think about it, you say that's sort of like uh, common sense. It's self-fulfilling prophecy. The stem is on the ECG. If you put a rule-based system, you're going to pick it up. So, of course, deep learning is going to pick it up. The, stem. the question is, can we actually have outcomes that are more or like broader than a stem? Things defined by culprit patients on angiograms. Because that's the essence. It's not a standing on standing dichotomy. We really want to go after occlusion. So are we able to use like Timmy flow criteria as our training endpoints? So these large databases need to be labeled to something like a solid endpoint, not things like troponin or things like a stimming. So if we have these two combinations, I think we should be able to build such model. The last thing, but not least, even if we build such model, this is going to be based on historical data. And before you inter incorporate things into the clinical workflow, you need prospective evaluation and real-time deployment. And that's, I think, where the field really needs to go. A lot of papers are academic exercises, open source databases, putting a lot of deep learning or AI out there and they say it works and end of the story. You know, we really need someone to take the work, move it, you know, uh, down the field where you really move into prospective testing. And this is part of the things that we are doing right now at, at UBMC. When you mentioned earlier that we are deploying 
we have in NIH funded to deploy some of these tools. So, uh, which I think it's, it's where the field needs to go. We really need to deploy and test it prospectively, not only deploy it and develop these things on historical data. Dr. Alzaiti, it's it really is the the case, right? I mean, you you mentioned kind of a, a model. First off, this is a one of the most important questions we we have to address, right? I mean, we have all these AI models that are built in. I, I think this is one of the most important ones to detect is the ischemia because we know that outcomes improved if we detect them. And it is clear that some of these NSTEMI patients have been well documented to have worse outcomes um, because maybe the the treatment or management is delayed a bit. And so we have to do better at detecting them. And so, like you mentioned, building a model that detects STEMI only, well, that that's not helping our cause because there's still that other group that, that needs some help. And I think it's those features you've mentioned, maybe even using some of the ECG imaging and that hybrid model. And, and you, you know, you heard it here first, the hybrid model, I think that's that could be the future, right? Uh, of using some of these things and then finally deploying that in which you're doing now in a prospective fashion is, is the most important uh, because we, we need to see that these models are not just academic things that we're building, but they also translate to the care we deliver. And so I'm glad that you're leading, uh, you're clearly a, a leader in the field in, in this. Now, the ECG remains an essential aspect to the evaluation of myocardial ischemia. However, what we see, saw today with Dr. Alzaiti is that it's not perfect and there's room for improvement. New approaches to enhance the ECG's sensitivity to detect acute myocardial ischemia might expedite the care we deliver our patients and even improve their outcomes. And we stand at the edge of exciting developments and promise in the field and that are taking place here at Mayo Clinic, but even in Pittsburgh and, and throughout the world. Dr. Alzaidi, thank you so much for sharing your insights into ischemia ECG detection. I, I'm so excited and, and glad and can't wait for others to, to hear more about this. It's clear you're a leader in the field and we're so excited to learn more about your work and, and the future uh, that you hold. On behalf of our team, thank you for taking time to join us. It's really been a true pleasure. Thank you so much, Anthony. It's, it was a great pleasure as well, and I, I hope we uh, we can you know continue to work together. The work that you're doing in Mayo Clinic with AI is also very impressive, and there's always room for improvement. So it's uh, uh, again, uh, it's, it was a pleasure to be here today, and we should stay in touch. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast at cveducation.mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to a Mayo Clinic cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in every other week to explore today's most pressing electrocardiography topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.